Welcome to the Tango Juliet Foxtrot podcast. My name is Ian Donnelly. There hasn't been a whole lot to laugh about in British policing for quite a few years now. This podcast is all about what it was really like to be in the British police for the last 30 years. In the podcast, I'll talk about all the different jobs that I did, and I'll interview people who also did some really interesting things. I'll give you my thoughts about what's been going on recently in the news to help you understand how it all works. Spoiler alert, it's not like it is on the telly. This podcast is the real deal. I'm going to be discussing some quite disturbing things from time to time, so listener caution is advised. There may also be a bit of swearing, so best to keep the kids out of the room. Everything I say and have written comes out of a place of great love for British policing. You may not agree with it all, and that's okay. But all I ask is that you listen with an open mind, and if you go away feeling that you know a bit more about what policing is really all about, and perhaps have a bit more empathy for police officers, then I've succeeded. So, here we go. Hello everybody, nice to be back with you again, Ian here. Welcome back to the Tango Juliet Foxtrot podcast. Hope you're enjoying this beautiful weather we're having, although I do believe it's going to be pouring with rain later on this week. So there you go. Good for the garden and the ducks, as they say. Uh, listen, this week um, I'm absolutely delighted to have interviewed the Chief Constable of Northamptonshire Police, Nick Adderley, who has come to some attention recently because of his quite forthright views on a number of areas of policing where he sees that improvements can and should be made. So I'm absolutely chuffed to bits to be able to uh, interview my first chief constable. Um, anyone who reads anything I've written or said in the podcast, I've been quite blunt about some of the poor leadership, I suppose, uh, from some of those most senior people in policing in the last perhaps 10 years who have um, failed to support their staff and also failed to push back against the government cuts that effectively created a public safety crisis, in my view. And uh, whilst we'll never be able to absolutely prove it, uh, without any shadow of a doubt, cost the lives of many, many people. So it was um, great to be able to speak to someone who was refreshingly frank about the challenges facing policing and has clearly got the very best interests of UK policing running through his veins like a stick of Blackpool rock. So um, I'm going to get on with the interview in a moment. I was going to do a little bit of a review of the last week or so in policing because there's been a lot going on and I think I'd like to just sort of explain my thoughts around some of that. But what I'm going to do instead is I'm going to do a slightly shorter podcast, which I'll describe as a bonus episode. When I said that to my wife, she said, bonus for who? Um, but anyway, it just gives me an opportunity to talk about that stuff without getting in the way of a interesting interview. Okay, so without any further ado, here's Nick Adderley. Hello, can you hear me, Ian? Yes, I can hear you. Can you Yay. hear me? <laughs> yeah, I've got you loud and clear. Sorry uh, I'm a few minutes late. How are you? No problem at all. I'm very well. How are you? You're good, good, good. Thank you. Look at yeah, you all very looking good. smart as a smart as a new pin in your <laughs> chief constable uniform. <laughs> I know. Who'd have thought? <laughs> it, uh, well, there you go. It happens, happens to, uh, you know, it happens to not everyone, but uh, it's obviously happened to you. So listen, Nick, and can I just start off by saying I'm absolutely delighted um, to be chatting to you on the podcast today. You're the very first chief constable that I've managed to persuade to come in on the podcast. So well done you. Um, and you. Uh, yeah, um, just to kind of um, help you, um, there's a few things I want to kind of go through just to sort of get your, to, to give you sort of a sporting chance, I suppose, um, to get your thoughts. So first of all, I wanted to talk about kind of your career and kind of the various things you did along the way to get to the dizzy heights of chief constable. Um, and and then um, uh, I want to talk about your thoughts around the current state of UK policing, um, where we are yeah. at the moment. 
Um, and there's a few sort of subheadings there, which I'll come on to when I go through that. Um, and yeah. then and then we'll talk about uh, the future, where you see policing going in the future. Um, if that's okay, right. that'll be great. So, yeah. so listen, Brilliant. do you want to just introduce, for the benefit of, of everybody kind of listening to this, do you want to sort of just briefly introduce yourself and what who you are and what you do? Yeah, of course. Yeah. So uh, my name's Nick Adderley. I'm the current Chief Constable of Northamptonshire Police. So I'm responsible for uh, the county of Northamptonshire, which is around about 800,000 people, uh, a budget of just under £150 million and staff of around about 2,700 now. Brilliant. Okay. So so the reason um, the reason I wanted to speak to you particularly, because I, as you know, I, I emailed your office, um, you've been you know very refresh in my view very refreshingly uh, candid about some of the challenges that you see around policing at the moment so specifically you talked about um being you know the, the only chief constable of the country to my knowledge who who is determined to give tasers to all of your frontline officers um for their protection uh and and, and more recently you've been quite um candid about the calibre and the readiness of some of the officers coming through joining the organisation in terms of, um, you know, their, their kind of temperament and some of their sort of thinking or whatever. So that's that's why I wanted to speak to you. I thought you'd be a great person to kind of, you know, get in first and hopefully there'll be a few more chief constables, you know, eventually. But um, do you want to just tell us a little bit about your career? So when did you join? where and, and the sort of jobs that you did in the sort of early years i suppose yeah of course so i joined um, i joined the police in uh, 1992 in february of 1992 and i actually joined the cheshire constabulary uh, as i left the uh, the royal navy or I was about to leave the royal navy i actually applied for my home force at that time which was greater manchester police and in those days you could apply for as many forces as you like so i applied for greater manchester police and cheshire police at the same time and, uh, and Cheshire Police came along first, and, uh, and I was more than happy to, uh, to to join that constabulary. A fabulous force then, and still a fabulous force now, actually. Um, so, yeah, I joined on the 17th of February in 1992, and uh, and I was posted to uh, to Runcorn, which is on the uh, the outskirts, on the border of, of Merseyside, and uh, a, a fantastic place to learn your craft, I have to say. I know, I'll be very uh, careful. I actually, I actually know Runcorn a little bit, because when I was on the surveillance team, in the Met, we had a job, um, not in Runcorn, but it was up that neck of the woods. And and I was a surveillance photographer at that time. Um, so I used to do some um, arty-farty photography as well as my surveillance photography. So, so during my downtime, I used to um, go and sort of take landscapes, photographs and things like that. And there's a, there's a quite an impressive kind of bluff, I think that's the word, correct geological word, a sort of bluff um, overlooking um, the sea and overlooking the town of Runcorn, so it's so yep. slightly to the let me think. Well, get my geography right here, west of Runcorn, and yeah. I went up there one day to take some photographs. It was just as the sun was setting, and you've got all of that industrial stuff below you, haven't you? Yes, yeah. And, and I got approached by two or three likely lads um, who, <laughs> who who were obviously determined to rob my um, camera gear off me. <laughs> so that was my introduction to Runcorn. Was that typical of Runcorn? Um, I, I th well, I think typical of Runcorn, some very um, some amazing people. One of the uh, one of the things that I learned there uh, in the, the very formative years, I was a late joiner. Of course, I was twenty eight years old when I joined the police. But one of the things that I realised that was the formative time when I became a unit beat officer, a community beat officer. That I realised that the vast majority of people were indeed grateful for what the police did, needed you, wanted that safety and that security. And actually, it was the minority of people that would want to steal your camera of and course. try and turn you over. Of course. Prior to that i actually had that view that actually everybody was a villain everybody was out to commit crime and uh, it was a battle of wits but um but as i say a great place to learn to learn the trade the policing trade because you had everything you had you know you had the uh, the, the organized crime groups they weren't known as that then you had all of that coming in from Ellesmere port and liverpool you had obviously the traveling criminality coming in from manchester because of where it was situated and i think as i say in those early years in those sort of first five six years you know i really learned my trade of being a police officer how to talk to different sections of the community how to be really robust in policing style when that was required 
and the fact that actually you can't dance around these people you've got to hit some of these organized crime you've got to hit them hard and uh, that's always stayed with me and um yeah, yeah. and as i say that that served me well for the future good brilliant so yeah cracking cracking place to learn your trade so um so got just sort of whistle stop through your career so sergeant when when did you where were you sergeant yeah, so um, so I never worked the uh, the nice ends of Cheshire. I never actually worked the posh ends of Cheshire. They always stuck me in the rougher parts mm-hmm. of it. I think that's because I I look ugly and I act <laughs> ugly, and uh, so they always put me in the rough parts of uh, of Cheshire. But uh, uh, yeah, so I got promoted and I stayed as a sergeant in the. Uh, it was then the divisions or the boundaries then changed, but I covered areas such as Northwich and uh, and out as far as uh, the Congleton and Vale Royal area. And again, in that role as a PC, I'd been crime car, I'd been traffic. Uh, crime always interested me but because of the commitments that I had at home with young children I just couldn't give the time that was required to do that but I did the CID aid and I spent a short time uh, working in an, an area of policing which I absolutely adore and if I had my time again I would have spent more time in the in the CID but predominantly ops the same with uh, with the sergeant's role and uh, and then as a sergeant probably about 18 months in I then became a custody sergeant interesting thing with the custody sergeant that was another one where I went into there kicking and screaming screaming but within two and I was a custody sergeant for two years and they had to drag me out I enjoyed it that much and as I say about you know when you learn your trade and learn your craft I think understanding the Police and Criminal Evidence Act and actually having that responsibility of a custody block where the life of people is in your hands and uh, and it stops with you I think again was was a great foundation for me that that went on it's like a lot of those jobs I was I had an interesting interview with my old boss yesterday that I've just uploaded that podcast today so uh chief superintendent clive burgess who went on to come sort of briefly to acc before he left and we were talking about this actually about how some of those jobs that you initially so so we were joking you were joking that when i got promoted to inspector um i got the shit inspector's job um when i went to his um oku uh, or bcu or call it what you want i was the op center inspector which is always the shit job for the newly promoted inspector isn't it um but you know what yeah. i i learned so much in that job um oh, about yeah. about contact management about um managing police staff that was another big one for me because i've yeah. never managed police staff before so yeah, yeah sometimes those jobs um that you are reluctant to do are actually the jobs you you learn the most isn't it yeah, absolutely right. And you know, if I uh, if there's if there's bits of advice that I can give along the way as my career sort of comes to an end, hopefully, well, not in the next few years, but it's, I'm in the twilight years of my mm-hmm. career. If I can give bits of advice along the way, the one thing that I do say to officers when you get those postings is your initial reaction, maybe that's not what you want to do, it wouldn't be your first choice, mm-hmm. but actually make the job your own. Whatever job you get, make the job your own. There are the fundamentals that you have to do, but put your own personality on it, put your own stamp on it, and make it work for you too. And uh, and that's what I've done throughout throughout my career. Actually, yeah. just make the job my own and put your own stamp on it. Definitely, I totally agree. Um, and so, um, next ranks, obviously, Inspector Chief Inspector. Did you stay in Cheshire? No, so um, so I uh, I then came out of uh, custody after a couple of years. I'd been a patrol room sergeant, control room sergeant, custody sergeant, did all of that, was a sergeant best rank still, I think, in the police service now, the most influential and important rank within the police service. I still believe that. And I stayed at that rank for six years or so. And then, uh, then I came out and became the operations in- inspector at Warrington. And I did that for a number of years, running crime car units, roads policing units, and, uh, and the day-to-day operational activity across... Um, across Warrington and uh, and into Witness. Uh, and then I, one day I got a phone call from uh, somebody who became a very good friend of mine. We weren't good friends at the time. We knew each other as colleagues, but a guy by the name of, of uh, his name is Guy Hindle. So a gentleman by the name of Guy Hindle, who was currently, the at that point, was the staff officer to Nigel Burgess, who was the chief at the time. Mm-hmm. And a guy said to me, who subsequently went on to become an ACC, by the way, and a very good ACC, um, Guy Hindle said to me that the new chief constable, Peter Faye, wants a new staff officer, and I told him that you're it. Mm-hmm. Now, this came completely out of the blue, and I had no idea that I would have even been considered for uh, for such a role. You know, I always considered those roles as the, you know, the brightest and the best, and that they were going to be there to support the chief, and I didn't consider myself to be one of those. Mm-hmm. So I, uh, after I'd stopped laughing, um, he said, no, I'm serious, and uh, Peter Farhi would uh, would like to interview you with a couple of other candidates. And uh, my boss at the time was a guy by the name of uh, Tim Jackson, who was a chief superintendent, uh, again, fantastic individual, a huge amount of respect for Tim Jackson, who said, no, I think you should do it. You should yeah. you'd go for the interview. Did. 
got the job. Mm-hmm. And I was actually relaying the story the other day. I remember when Peter Fahey, now Sir Peter, of course, that uh, when Sir Peter offered me the job, he said, let's do it on a six-month basis. If I don't like you, you go. Or if you don't like me, you go. Mm-hmm. And I remember laughing with him and saying, well, that's a sad indictment. The chief constable says, I don't like you, you've got to go. I think that's a career-defining <laughs> moment, actually. <laughs> but um, but I worked for, uh, for Sir Peter for two years. And I think, again, when we talk about turning points within your career, mm. again, completely out of the blue, when people say you've done really well, I often say I've been really lucky. And I have been really lucky mm. because opportunities came my way. And yes, I took them. Mm. But I have been really lucky because after doing that job for two years, and Sir Peter at that point had four portfolios. He had coroners. And it was at the time of Harold Shipman. You can oh, imagine God. the learning oh, yeah, in that yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. He had race and diversity. You can imagine that was just starting to take off. Yeah, yeah. He had things like um, he had the special constabulary, which was was fantastic. All of his portfolios mm. were all really key influential bits of work that yeah, yeah. you know have assisted me in this role. So, for people just uh, for people listening who, who maybe don't understand what that means, um, basically, chief officers, every chief officer in the country, as you know, uh, Nick has a national portfolio. So, on top of their day job, they've got a a sort of a responsibility for a thematic area of business. So it sounds as if yeah. Peter Fahey had many of those. <laughs> he did. He did. I mean, he, you know, an, an incredibly uh, bright individual who um, who had the capacity, you know, the brain capacity of several people. So he had all of that and his day job. And effectively, that was given to me to to manage, as well as the day-to-day office of the, of the, of the chief constable, which, uh, again, was fantastic. And so I did that for two years at the rank of inspector. And after two years, I remember sitting down with, uh, with Sir Peter and having the one-to-one. And I said, what's next for me? Because again, in all of these things, I'm mindful that your credibility as an operational officer, you need to keep keep refreshing that and making sure that you know that you are up to speed with everything that's going on. Mm-hmm. And so Peter said, he was very, very, he said, listen, he said, it's time for you to go national. That's what he said now. It's time for you to go national. It's some kind of launch of One Direction, a pop star <laughs> or something. So he said, it's time for you to go national. And I said, I don't know what you mean. And he said, well, you know, you've done the BCU, oh, do, you've done the do local. You mean you're, you're going to a, you're going to the Isle of Man? Is that what he meant? <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So he said, I think that the next the next move for you should be either for HMIC, so sort Her of Majesty's Inspectorate of Constabulary, as it was at that time, yeah. or into the Police Standards Unit, which was a unit set up in the Home Office under the Labour government to look at the standards of performance of forces across the UK. And again, you know, one of those things that personally I wouldn't have I wouldn't have thought of doing myself but because of his encouragement and advice uh and because it's somebody who i hugely respect i thought yeah absolutely makes sense so mm. uh, and then a few weeks later uh, an advert came up uh, almost as if it was contrived for the standards unit in the, in the home office and i applied and i got that job so i went to the home office then as a temporary chief inspector so what year are we talking here so that would have been around 2002 right okay yeah interesting um and that it really was. I mean, that was a fascinating time at the Home Office. I can't. I can't even begin to explain. Anybody who is serious about reaching, uh, you know, chief officer level, I will. I, I often say when I do one-to-ones of mentoring with people, you have to get into the strategic space as soon as you can, maintaining your operational credibility because seeing the workings of government, even now, and it hasn't changed that much. Although there's been changes of government uh, of colour. But actually seeing the workings of government firsthand and having one-to-ones with mm. then David Blunkett, as it was, and then having one-to-ones with Charles Clark, mm. who were the Home Secretaries at the time, and getting the briefings around yeah. all of that, fascinating time. I will share one fascinating story whilst I was there. It was at the time when, very sadly, the two little girls in Cambridge who were murdered, Holly Wells mm. and Jessica. And, um, and of course, there was the Police Reform Act had recently come in. And uh, David Westwood up in Humberside and Tom Lloyd down in Cambridge, who were the two chief constables. I remember the Home Secretary at the time being furious that uh, that, that had happened, the not mm. the sharing of information, intelligence, etc. Mm. And being sat in on that briefing and being told mm. to go and investigate those offices of the chief constable right. to yeah, understand yeah. what had gone on was yeah, was yeah. Uh, was, yeah. was incredible yeah. so of yeah so i did of, that for a, for a couple of years and of course out of all of that came b shard the b shard inquiry and the police national mm. database and all of that <laughs> there, you know yeah so um so, yeah, and yeah. interestingly now as the national police chief's lead for um you're talking about the portfolios is now the lead for the disclosure and barring service uh, it's all come back full uh, circle oh, so really, now i own all that that's you oh well, lucky you well there you go that's called karma yeah. isn't it you know <laughs> Um, but but uh, okay, so so yeah, so just conscious of time, um, you're so you're chief inspector by that stage, is that right? Yeah, chief inspector uh, there, 
I then, after the secondment finished two years, I came back to Cheshire as a chief inspector and then started to lead the Five Forces merger or the National Mergers Project, if you remember, the Charles yeah. Clark days. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did that for a short while, of course, that, that came to nothing because obviously the, the challenges that was presented. And then was promoted to superintendent at right. uh, in Cheshire too. At that time, Peter Fye had moved across to Greater Manchester Police and uh, and he encouraged me to apply for a role in Greater Manchester Police, which I did. And I went over as a level transfer right. as the um, uh, as a superintendent on the South Manchester Division. Right. Um, and of course, not that not long after, twelve months or so after, I then got promoted to chief superintendent and took right. command of Tameside. And did you find a big culture difference between moving from a force like Cheshire to a big city force like GMP? Yeah, what I'd say about that is that same work. Different postcode. I know it's an old saying in policing, but same work, different postcode. But what I found was that the volume of it was 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 vastly, vastly different. So Cheshire is a very safe county. So it's Greater Manchester, actually. But Cheshire was a safe county. Maybe one or two really serious incidents per week. You go to Manchester, there were 30 or 40 per day. And so the volume and the intensity of that work and the throughput that you had to get on with meant that actually the quality perhaps wasn't there. That was the biggest culture change in terms yeah. of the volume and the intensity of the work. Okay, so again, uh, just sort of fast forward then. So when did you do the uh, strategic command course then? Yeah, so in 2014, I did the strategic command course. And um, so I'd been a chief superintendent for a number of years. And uh, and again, that was uh, that was encouragement to go for uh, for PNAC got through that. And uh, Mm -hmm. obviously 2015 did the course Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, got through great. And then um, I only wanted to, at that point, uh, I was looking at sort of one force in particular, which was Staffordshire. And um, and I wanted, and, and the reason that I wanted to go and work in Staffordshire was because of the chief constable there. So Jane Sawyers was the chief. Mm-hmm. Jane uh, Sawyers, her values and the way that she led and ran that force absolutely resonated with mine. And I believe that I could add some value to it. So I, I was, I waited 12 months, which is obviously people say, oh, you shouldn't do that. Your currency diminishes if, if you don't get a job after five minutes. Nonsense. Absolute nonsense pick your team and make sure that it lines up with your values. Don't chase the rank. And I wasn't prepared to do that. And so I joined Jane's team in, uh, in 2016. And uh, had a wonderful time working we for were, Jane. We were near neighbours then, weren't we? Because I was West we Midlands. Um, I was probably, so 2016, what was I doing then? I was a, I was DCI Force Intel at West Mids. Um, <laughs> yeah, and we were going through, we were just coming up to sort of the big sort of uh, transformational kind of pressing the button on Force Transformation. So yeah, um, yeah, okay. So, so yeah, we would have known quite a few people, I imagine. Um, yeah. So yeah, so Staffordshire then, um, did you stay in Staffordshire for a while? Yeah, just under three years, and then the opportunity to apply for. And again, I know this is not uh, this is not the normal course of action, but actually, um, not doing the DCC's rank, I have never been a deputy chief constable. Right. I was asked to apply for the chief constable's role in uh, in Northamptonshire, so it was a jump from ACC to chief. Right. It has been done before, but it's mm-hmm. not common. And um, and so I applied. It was uh, again, you know, I had a look at the force and what I thought that I could bring, and you know, was I ready to take on that particular challenge? And I applied, and uh, and uh, you know, hugely grateful that I was that I was successful. So never yeah. been a deputy, I'm straight yeah. into the chief's role here in uh, in Northamptonshire. Fantastic. So, what's it like being a chief constable? Do you enjoy it? Yeah, yeah. I think uh, I think anybody who who has aspirations to be a chief needs to understand that you it, it is a very political position with a small p as well. Mm-hmm. You have to manage politics as much as you have to manage some of the day to day things that you would expect a chief to run. So. Setting the strategic vision for the force, making sure that you're delivering what the public expects against the police and crime plan, but understanding that there is a, a, an acute political aspect to it and you have to tread very, very carefully. So I think that was the biggest difference from all the other ranks and all the other roles that I've ever performed. But it's a it's a huge privilege because, of course, it uh, it's your train set and you have to make it work well. Definitely. Okay, right, fantastic. That that was really interesting, and it sort of sets the scene. So I'm just going to move on slightly, um, just around to the, my second kind of point, really. So the state of UK policing. So, so Nick, um, you're probably aware. Uh, if you're not, uh, you will be in a moment. So I've I've written a book, um, which is called Tango Juliet Foxtrot, which is the same name as this podcast, and the um, the relevance of the name of that um, book is that when I joined the Met back in 1989, um, a lot of people in the Met used the expression TJF uh, quite regularly. 
And, and it's something which is, I think, predominantly a Met thing, but I think it's sort of spread across the rest of the country. And you will know that TGF yep. is, a, is a tongue-in-cheek um, acronym for the job's fucked. Um, and, and people have been saying that um, kind of on and off pretty much forever um, in yep. police in policing. And, uh, you know, and I tell a story in the book about meeting an old boy who um had fought in the second world war i think he'd been evacuated off the dunkirk beaches and i think then he joined the police in london somehow and he ended up working all through the blitz and when i met him in the early 90s he was he was in his 90s himself and he told me some great stories about policing the blitz and all this kind of stuff and just as i was leaving he whispered to me and he goes is the job still fucked and I sort of laughed and said, yes, of course it is. Um, so it's a kind of a tongue-in-cheek kind of thing, isn't it? But, yeah. but the, the book, um, the, the kind of basic premise of the book uh, is that, in my view, and I think in the, in the view of a lot of police officers, well, I'm not a police officer anymore, but I was until two years ago, um, a lot of police officers nationally uh, are very concerned about the way that things have been kind of done to policing over the last, particularly over the last sort of 10, 10 to 12 years. Um, and there is a growing fear that um, the heart and soul has kind of gone out of policing. There's also, so, so add to that, there's also a very hostile media narrative, persistently hostile media narrative, which I think has a corrosive effect on morale. Um, yeah. And then there's also something there for me around um, uh, a lack of strong, confident leadership at the top. And I, I very much exclude you from, from that for the reasons I described at the start of the podcast, because I think you've very refreshingly come out and supported your people uh, and, 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 mm. and, and offered an alternative narrative to, to the prevailing narrative. So... So yeah, so I've said a lot there. Um, what, where do you think UK policing currently is? Okay, uh, l let's let's um, get the elephant out of the room. The bit about cops moan. It's part of cop culture. They moan. Even if I said to one of my cops today, you've just won a million pounds, but you've got to go and pick it up from West Midlands Police, he'd say, well, I'll go and get it myself, and can I claim overtime and the mileage? Cops moan, simple as. Uh, and it's part of the culture. And I actually think it's part of what gets cops through their very challenging day-to-day uh, -day, uh, role, no question. I, do I do I personally think that, uh, that it, the job's knackered? No, I don't. I absolutely don't. I think that, you know, I and this is my experience on four force in through four forces now is that the men and women that go out there and do that job they in the main they absolutely love what they do they want to do they want to pour their heart and soul into it they care passionately about the work that they do and the professionalism that they uh, that they have i think that there are two things that we've got to we've got to separate here i think there are local issues which affects morale and there are national issues which affects morale and i, I and again i'm not going to shy away from I think very controversially, maybe the fact that uh, when the previous Home Secretary, uh, certainly uh, Theresa May, I don't think she did the police service any favours. I'm not blaming her for austerity, and I'm certainly not blaming her for what needed to be done in terms of cuts. But what I would say is that I think that that Home Secretary could have done a lot more to support policing and be more positive in the way that she spoke about policing. I think if you get a Home Secretary who doesn't speak in the highest regards for the service that they are responsible for politically or, or over see i think that almost gives license for other people to say well if she's kicking them we're going to kick them too I, I do think that that was where the rot started i'll be honest with you it's very different with the current home secretary by the way it's always a very positive narrative and i'm not talking about funding that's a very complex issue i'm talking about support for the very difficult job that the men and women of the british police service do because of that, you know, that made me redouble my efforts to make sure that the people that work for me in this particular force, that they feel valued and we show the value that they add. And that's why I will go out on a limb, always go out on a limb. And I know sometimes it upsets some of my peers that I will say things that actually we've got to get, we've got to redress the balance where you've got to show the support and the challenges that the men and women of the police service face every single day. And yes, balance that with the political conversations about doing the right thing and actually being seen to do the right thing. That's all very, very important. The legitimacy of policing is vital to the success of policing communities. Absolutely. But where people have, have done wrong or where people need to be 
I don't know, dug out, so to speak, then don't shy away from it. Do not shy away from it. So the bit about tasers, mm. I am sick to death. I said that I am sick to death of sitting at this desk every single day, reading that officers have had lumps bitten out their cheeks, that they've had ears torn off, that they've been stabbed, kicked, punched, all the rest of it. And we sit idly by and say, well, there is equipment out there that could help protect them. But I tell you what, we better not, because it might upset a few. Mm. Well, the reality is, deal with that then. Mm-hmm. deal with the people that may be upset, look at the legitimacy of the tactics that are employed, put the very the, the relevant scrutiny panels in place, but don't simply say, can't do that because it might offend a few. Mm-hmm. Let's get real. Crime is changing. The profile of, change, of crime is changing. The violence towards police officers is getting more and more intense. And we, with every crime pattern, we would look to change our tactics. Why aren't we doing that with the officer safety stuff? Now, the National Police Youth Council have done some great work since, and I can continuing to do some work but i'm saying that what chiefs should do is they should exercise their authority and be more vocal in supporting the work that their officers do Mm -hmm. i'm being realistic ian we don't Mm -hmm. always get it right we Mm -hmm. cock up big time at times of course we do we're human beings uh, but support them where relevant yeah no and and just to reassure you nick um do i do i generally in my heart of hearts think that the job's knackered uh no i don't um because because i like you have enormous um faith in the um, yeah. integrity and the passion and the dedication and the professionalism of British police officers. Um, however, Sorry. there there are some kind of warning signs, I suppose, for want of a better word, uh, that 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 kind of give me really concern me. So again, I talked about this with Clive yesterday, but I'll just run it by you. So so the falling criminal justice outcomes are a real concern. I think if you look at yeah. year on year, um, I think last year. Uh, we're talking about total recorded crime, the conversion rate to CGI outcomes was something around 7%, yeah. which yeah. is not a good place. So if you're a victim of crime, so for, for those who are listening who think I've no idea what you're talking about, um, so total recorded crime is every single crime that is reported by a member of the public and is then sort of converted in statistics from the Home Office. And you know some, some of it will be screened out at source because um, there are no lines of inquiry or it's uh, for whatever reason. Um, but the, the net result is that probably t- 10 to 15 years ago, we were sitting roughly around 17, 18% of total recorded crime, yeah. which is then brought to a, a sort of prosecution in the courts. That has now dropped to 7%. So what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think um, it, it is worrying. It is really worrying. And I think we've got to go back to have a look and redress what it is that we're talking about. And there, I think there are a couple of things that are, are instrumental in this. One, I think police, the policing has lost its identity slightly. I think we need to realign what the police are there to do and what they're about. And I think that that almost, whether that was done under a formal review or Royal Commission or whatever it is they wanted to do, I think the identity of the police needs to be re-established about what it is that they are there to do. The second thing is, of course, is that when the cuts hit, particularly uh, 10, 11, 12 years ago now, is that, of course, it wasn't just the police that was hit. It was all the supporting uh, agencies too. So local authorities, third sector, charities, everything was hit by that and shifted demand onto policing. So suddenly we found ourselves in a space that we'd rather not be in. Mm. And, the, and the two for me go hand in glove. So suddenly we have to be uh, mental health experts. Suddenly we have to be uh, full-time social workers. We have to be youth diversion implementers and so on. Mm. And I think what that has done is slowly we have started to see the shift into less around the hard-edged enforcement. So if I give you my outcomes figure now here is 14% in Northamptonshire, we are now doing 33% more proactive work. That's Mm. kicking doors in, Mm. flying through windows, ripping Mm. OCGs off the streets, 33% more than we were doing and the highest now nationally. That for me is the police. The police need to police and keep the, the streets safe. What we have to do is look at the investment into the other agencies and areas of business that can take on the other bits of work Mm. that will form part of prevention and intervention for future generations so that's what i think we need to do and i think we will come to a pinch point very soon where somebody in government probably will grab hold of that and say right let's reset the button and redefine what the police is all about of course what that will do that will influence the recruits that you take on Mm. because Mm. i know there are there are i i have many enemies i know that i have many enemies from within you know, and external too. I get all of that. Uh, I've been really... 
the amount of diversity, you will reduce opportunities for people to come in if you start to be more hardline in terms of what policing is all about. Well, let's be honest about that. Let's be honest about what we want the police to do. And if that's the kind of recruit that we want, that's the recruit that we target. Yeah, yeah, no, you're absolutely right. It's a, it's an ecosystem, isn't it? And it starts, it yeah. starts, it starts uh, right at the sort of top of saying, right, what are the police there to do? What is their mission? Yep. Um, and one of one of the one of the things that that you know I saw, uh, like we all did in the in the police over the last sort of ten to fifteen years ago. So going back, um, you know, I, I was a DI on a public protection unit. Um, for a period of time before I, I, I went and went back to counterterrorism, but there was a three or four year period when I was I was a DI in a PPU, which is predominantly child abuse investigations, as well as all of the other stuff, sex offender management, et cetera. And, yeah. and, and vulnerability, the whole notion of vulnerability in those days um, was fairly, um, it, was, it was a fairly tight definition. So unless you were a, vi a, a victim of sexual, of sexual offence and you reported it and, and you cooperated with the investigation or, or there was very clear evidence that something untoward had happened, then you would get a, you would get a service from the police. But we didn't go out, yeah. kind of, we didn't kind of go out looking for it. So, so the, 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 but, but then as you know, um, the vulnerability agenda has expanded exponentially over the last sort of yep. 10 years or so, uh, yep. and, which I think is broadly a good thing. But the, yep. my, my fear with that is that we now kind of see vulnerability absolutely everywhere. And, and whilst that, yeah. you know, that might not be an ideal situation for someone, the reality is with limited resources, uh, we cannot solve every bad thing that happens in society. Yeah. So, so do you think we've gone too far down the road of, of kind of tackling vulnerability? I do, personally. I think uh, what we've done is, if you think about, uh, you know, if somebody was to say to me, look, in one sentence, some of what you what, what do you think an ideal police service would look like? I would say, for example, it, it is Dixon of Doc Green that's doing all of that relationship. We're doing that here, connected uh, and communicating with our public at the lowest level. Yep, I want George Dixon out there building those relationships and everything else. But when he recognises that there is crime and an issue taking place, I want George Dixon going through the door mm. with the big red key and sorting mm. those problems out. Where vulnerability is a key, a key issue, and again, we've got to go back to the starts of parenting, it starts through schooling and all the rest of it, because you're right, by the time it gets to us, actually, it's a bit too late. Mm. But what I would like to see is greater investment in those services where the police can make the, the relevant referrals in. Mm. And so the, professional, the professionals in that area of vulnerability are doing the work that they need to do. We have some incredible professionals here in the police service that deal with vulnerability, but that's to a point, to a point. And of course, when you get the partnerships involved, they take on some of that. We need to, again, it goes back to what do you want the police to do? One of the targets I've set here, and it is a target, I don't shy away from targets at all because I, think, I don't think that's a dirty word per se, is around, is around visibility. I want the cops on the street. I want them to be seen. I want them to be walking, driving, and in those areas. If they're taking a member, of the, and this is everyday occurrence for me, and I go through every single one. If an officer arrests somebody under Section 136 of the Mental Health Act and takes them for assessment to the hospital, they could be there for 10, 12 hours. It's not uncommon that they'll be sat there for eight hours. Mm. If that person is so vulnerable, it needs two officers, and nine times out of 10, it does. That's two officers who are off the street. Commonly, three or four people per day may be arrested under 136 mm. or four or five per week or whatever. Um, there should be a mechanism and investment that actually allows those officers to get back to do the job that they are paid to do and then let the true professionals get on with doing the job that they should be doing in terms of assessments, diversion and rehabilitation. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And certainly uh, in the latter period of my of my career, I was I was one of a team of five superintendents running the force on a sort of day to day basis and what was known as mission support. So we were effectively allocating resources, managing critical incidents and, and all of that stuff through yeah. the sort of the day to day sort of tempo of early's and late's, thankfully not nights, but there you go. Uh, the FIM had, <laughs> had nights, but um yeah, and, and very often, you know, we would start a tour of duty uh, with, you know, literally dozens of officers tied up uh, across the force in uh, custody blocks on constant watches, um, hospital yeah. watches of prisoners. And as you say, that's sort of, it's over a 24-hour period, period, you're talking minimum two officers per, per patient, 
um, to lie, yep. lie for toilet breaks and all of that kind of stuff. Six officers yes. a day per patient, <laughs> plus all of the custody yep. blocks. So, so very often you would start a tour of duty, um, you know, with with probably only three quarters of the officers available for response that you would that you should have had because the rest were all tied yep. up with all of that sort of. Those sort of babysitting, uh, you know, uh, sorry, that's not a very appropriate word, but babysitting um, people who really shouldn't, should not have been the responsibility of police. Um, so, yeah, listen, yeah, um, exactly. just moving on to a slightly different subject. Um, stop and search as, as, is, is, a, yeah. is a massively contentious issue, as you know. And yeah. it seems to me that it's, it's currently been used as a stick to beat the yeah. police over the head with nationally. And that's nothing particularly new. Um, but what what is particularly kind of worrying to me is that um, we're, we're simultaneously the subject of a lot of hostile media narrative around stop and search. And at the same time, we are seeing outbreaks of extreme violence taking place in broad daylight in public places involving gangs of youths with knives and machetes. Only last week we had two incidents in London where people were fighting in broad daylight in public places with machetes. Um, which is just yep. completely unacceptable. So there is a kind of a, yep. a weird, a weird sort of um, irony that this conversation is taking place against the backdrop of extreme violence on the street. So where where are you on all of that stuff? Yeah, and again, you know, tragically, just a couple of weeks ago, we had a young man that was killed, lost his life here uh, to uh, a knife, and we're seeing knife crime here growing. Uh, exponentially, and uh, and it is it is really worrying, not just here but across the country as well. I think there's a couple of things. Uh, the, the first thing is around the disproportionality, and I think that it is right the whole effort that is going into making sure that we understand the disproportionality. Their words, not mine. Uh, and again, it is it, immortalised in an article that I uh, that I I spoke with not so long ago. That when we look at our profiles of organised crime groups here in. Northamptonshire, those that are travelling up from London, those that are travelling in from the West Midlands, etc., that predominantly they are young black men. Now, when you start to give an intelligence pack around what you know, and the people that are involved in that are young black men, known, supported by intelligence, then clearly there is going to be that activity towards a group of people who are young black men. I think the bit for me more than anything else is we need to redouble our efforts in terms of understanding why that is. And again, that goes beyond police's boundaries. That goes back to young, you know, to as I say, to schooling, to parenting and so on, and opportunities, uh, equal opportunities and, and other areas of conversation that are taking place. But I think the reality is, is that the, and again, we have some very good scrutiny panels here. We look at the way that those stop searches have been carried out. So is the intelligence right? And again, we have some very, very, very good independent advisory groups here that will advise us ethically on how we ought to go about that. Every officer carries body-worn video. Every stop search is videoed. Every stop search is then scrutinized by the independent scrutiny groups, and everyone is fed back uh, on. Because often you will, and I've spoken to young black men in our county, across our county, and they said, listen, sometimes, you know, rightly so, wrong place, wrong time. It's not what was done. It was the way that it was done. Mm -hmm. Now, when that's been happening 10, 15, 20 times in a month, there is something wrong. Mm -hmm. And we've got to make sure that we understand why those individuals are being targeted in the way they are. The question for me, more than anything else, is how do you deal with, and there is some technology coming down the line that means that you don't have to put your hands in people's pockets, you don't have to go to that intimate level of search on an individual, which is, I accept, is or can be humiliating and embarrassing. I get all of that. Mm. And there is technology that's coming down the line that can perhaps pick some stuff up that, uh, in terms of knives and so on from a distance, so you don't have to do it. There's your reasonable grounds. Then you start the conversation. Then you carry out the search. Mm. I think it's that, and it's making sure that what we don't do is we don't lose the trust and confidence of our young communities mm. and that they see the legitimacy in what we are trying to do mm. uh, and that we see the propensity of knife crime growing and they understand that that's one of the ways if the intelligence fits and the circumstances fits, that we will try and deter and prevent people from losing their lives, as we've had here in Northamptonshire just recently. It's a very, very difficult... The media love it because it's easy. It's just easy. And, of course, what doesn't happen, uh, what doesn't help is when you've got uh, high-profile figures who videos um, stops in a car and they start to 
broadcast that all over YouTube and various mm. other social media outlets within minutes, mm. and there is no right of redress. And the one mm. thing we've done here, the West Midlands Police do this fantastically well, by the way, is that they set, they send out body-worn video very quickly, mm. which will show um, some of the, the balancing of the argument or the conversation that took place. We need to push that further, and I know that's a conversation with the Justice uh, Department too, but we've got to make sure that there is a right of reply yeah. and that we are sending what the true version of events yeah. rather than yeah. these clipped, edited versions that we're seeing. Yeah, well, it's a, it's a subject very close to my heart, really. Um, and, and I wrote a blog, put it on LinkedIn there the other day, which followed on from a previous one where I raised this issue of the corrosive effect of people videoing police officers whilst out and about um, just yeah. doing, doing their job and uh, on how that's completely unacceptable and and not only that but then you now have these self-appointed auditors of um police, predominantly police activity who are looking for a re to provoke a reaction which yeah. will then uh, generate uh, adverse publicity so i wrote to home office about that yeah. and, and to be fair to them they did reply to me and then today and i'm not taking any credit for this Personally, I think it's probably an ongoing conversation that's been taking place with the Police Federation. But today, there was the Home Secretary came out um, on the eve of the Police Federation conference, uh, talking about uh, it was on the in the Independent, I believe, talking about how that is going to become unacceptable and forces need to get on the front foot with uh, with with trying to counter that sort of narrative. So yeah, so I, I follow quite a lot of social media stuff, as you'd expect. Um, some of it is sort of open stuff on Twitter, some of it is um, closed groups that I'm a member of, police closed groups, um, and uh, and it's really interesting listening to the, reading the commentary about stop and search, um, and, and one of the things, so this is sort of, I'm sort of seg going to segue into your comments about um, officers, new officers being somewhat unprepared for policing. Um, there's a lot of stuff being talked about now on police related social media about people just saying, you know what, it's just too much aggravation. Stop and search has just become so toxic um, that we just don't want to do it anymore. And, and someone put something on yesterday. I'm not going to name them because it doesn't really matter who they are. But it was busy saying, I've got some PCs who are really, really good, but none of them want to do stop and search because they're worried about getting complaints. Um, how can I encourage them to do more stops and search? So I, I went back sort of like an angry father and, and went, you know, for God's sake, tell them to get a grip. And 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 just be 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 sure of your your grounds. Um, do it yep. professionally. Make sure your body worn video was on, and don't apologise. That's the most important thing. But of course, yep. we are seeing a generation of younger officers now who are entering policing at, at what can only be described as an incredibly difficult and challenging time. So you you've you've made some comments recently, haven't you, about? your sense that there are people who are coming into policing who are just not quite ready for, or, or maybe just don't quite have the right aptitude for policing. So do you want to talk a bit more about that? Yeah, yeah, I will I will support your comments, by the way, Ian, on stop search. I mean, this business about go wisely and understanding your powers. I've always said power is, you know, knowledge is power and all of that. Well, the, the fundamental thing more than anything else is that they need to know they've got the support of their superior or their, 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 their senior officers within the, their force. I go out often uh, on, and it's not even on a limb to say, if you followed the procedure, you've followed your, your section one, you've gone through the go wisely and all of that is above board. Let them, let people complain. Let, let them complain. I will stand with you shoulder to shoulder. That's what I'm asking you to do. Everything that you do, you do in my name, etc. Where people don't do it, right? Then, of course, there, there are questions that need to be uh, that need to be uh, asked and answered. But yeah, you know, give them the support and the confidence to do it. My, my comments, by the way, I'll, 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 I'll clarify them. That first of all, I'm not against the uh, the PEQF. I'm not against the entry routes into the police service per se. So the uh, so the uh, the professional the, the qualifications that that you need to have. Uh, whether it's a, a degree holder entry program, so you already have a degree, uh, or whether it is the PCDA, so the Police Constable Degree Apprenticeship. This is where you study for three years whilst on the job and you get the degree at the end of it. It is predominantly around the PCDA that, I, that I'm that i recognising uh, an issue here and 
uh, other forces have contacted me since to say that they are seeing the same issues too. But I'm not against it. I'll come back to that in a second. What I am against is that the college policing want to make that the only entry route into the police service, and they want to do away with, and uh, and, and they may well get this home, I hope they don't, but they want to do away with the uh, the um, the old way of joining the police, which was the, what they called the IPLDP, where you could come into the police service uh, without a degree. You didn't need to study for a degree. And looking statistically, that would tend to attract, it certainly did me, older applicants, people who have maybe family commitments, people who actually genuinely coming out of the forces or whatever it is. I think what we're doing is we're closing down an opportunity to a whole section of the community that would make really good police officers. I'm not saying through PEQF they wouldn't make good police officers either. They, we've got some fantastic people here through the PEQF, both on the PCDA and the DHEP. It's not a sweeping generalization. What I'm saying is two things. One, and again, a pundit, shall we say, did criticize me and say, it's not about the degree, you're missing the point. It's about your recruitment processes. I actually agree with that to an extent. But what I would say is, the demographic that the PCDA attracts is predominantly a younger demographic. My conversation with the college is that there is no longitudinal study that has taken place to say that that is the right way to get people into the service. And if we see the dilution of age and experience, of life experience, continue over the years that I think it will, you suddenly, so here, we've got 45% of the force here in Northamptonshire, and it's not, uh, it's not dissimilar elsewhere in the country with less than four years service. Mm. Where do we bring in and inject those life skills? Where do we bring those people from that actually have been around the block a few times, mm. that understand life in general, yeah. the, the technical detail and skill that you need mm. can be taught? Of course it can. So I'm not opposed to PEQF. I'm not opposed to the PCDA. I'm not opposed to DHEP. What I'm saying to the college is do not close down mm. the opportunity for people to come into the service who bring other skills who mm. don't want to have a degree uh, or don't already have a degree yeah, I totally and allow agree. forces to bring a bit age. I, I totally agree. And I, the thing is, I, I was so I joined in 1989. Um, I, I was a graduate when I came in, um, which was in those days still relatively rare. Um, yeah. No, I personally believe that being a graduate actually was a disadvantage to me when I joined the police because mm-hmm. I think yeah. I, in those early days of my career, I think I probably o- overthought things a bit too much, overintellectualized things. Um, yeah. Didn't, didn't have as much common sense as some of the people who had come in from the sort of university of life, so to speak, or or maybe from the military or yeah. other other backgrounds, and it probably took me, I think maybe two years longer to become a yeah. effective police officer i was lucky because i was working in south london um and and uh, after after two years i transferred as volunt- i asked to go to the busiest place i could possibly find in south london so i went to <laughs> clapham which is sort of bordering on to brixton um and i learned unbelievable i mean my my learning was just yeah. uh, exponential in in that in that yeah. environment um and so so yeah i do i do think I'm, I'm not saying that it's there's anything wrong with having a degree but i but i oh. I'm, I'm just not convinced that 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 it's absolutely necessary and certainly some of the best yeah. police officers i've worked with in my career didn't have degrees and uh you know it didn't do them any harm so yeah, no, 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 I agree. I think it, it's it's an interesting conversation. Again, you know, the, the chief exec at the college and I, we get on really, really well. And it's a professional d- discussion that's taking place. What I'm saying is that, you know, the fact that you have a degree, the people who are coming in now, as I say, fantastic officers across the country are joining through the PEQF uh, system. Fantastic. Great. But what we are seeing, what I'm seeing here is people are leaving after a very short period of time. What yeah. we don't know is, we don't know how that's going to play out in three years' time when they yeah. get that degree and actually suddenly yeah. they think, okay, 24 grand, I've got a degree, it's been paid for, I've got no debt. Yeah. Do the longitudinal study. Yeah. And whilst that takes place, keep yeah. open yeah. the opportunity for those who don't have degrees. Brilliant. Listen, I'm, I'm mindful of your time, Nick. You're a massively busy man, I'm sure. Just one final question, one kind of thought just uh, to leave us with. Um, again, one of my concerns, which I articulate in my book, 
is that because of Operation Uplift um, and the, I mean, in reality, people talk about this 20,000. In reality, it's a lot more than, as you know, it's a lot more than 20,000 yes. because of the yes. natural wastage. A lot of people retiring, a lot of people resigning, eight and a half thousand people resigned in the last three years. So I think ballpark yeah. figure, it's going to be something around 50,000 new cops potentially coming into the organization in the next sort of three to four years. Um, so, yeah. so, Simultaneously, you've got uh, an influx of very inexperienced officers. You've also got um, quite significant changes in terms and conditions of employment so that the kind of attractive pensions that the likes of you and I probably were happy to see policing as a long-term uh, career is no longer necessarily the case. So yep. my point is, my concern there is that in five to 10 years time, we will struggle to investigate some of the more serious crime types, homicide, counterterrorism, serious sex offences, dismantling serious and organised crime groups, simply because we haven't got the sort of depth of investigative experience that we've kind of taken for granted for the last 20 years. What, what are your thoughts on that? It's a yeah. very loaded question, isn't it? But um, I've kind of, I'm not expecting yeah. you to agree with me, but that's my thinking. Well, funnily enough, uh, you know, right in here, sat at this desk, I wrote the five-year strategy, which is a rolling five-year plan. I've just about uh, finished it now, and I'm talking about what does the cop of the future look like? What does the police staff member of the future look like? And when we start to see more crime moving into private space rather than public space, we talk about cyber and child exploitation, everything with a digital footprint. We are already starting to see people, even with a fairly decent length of service, who are now being attracted into other organizations for double their salary. So we've now got investigators into fraud for example who we we've got barclay card uh, on us here you know we we hemorrhage people um to barclay card because they pay twice three times the salary uh, salary that we have i think it goes back to my earlier statement that we've got a i think the police service we've got vision 2025 i think it needs to look beyond uh, that vision 30 now is has just come out mm -hmm. but i think within that there needs to be underneath all of the headline stuff around we're going to do this i'm going to be ace at that and we're going to solve all of this stuff underneath it needs to be that consideration about how do you incentivize people to actually do the work that we need them to do in the future this is a great debate by the way around do you want police officers to do that in the future but with the uplift of course i'm being forced to employ police officers actually with that money i could employ police staff to do those roles that don't need the warranted powers and i think looking into the future that needs a bit of a rethink and there needs to be a different this needs to be a role not rank in terms of pay and reward and recognition because if we don't do that and i get the financial position within public sector all we will find is people will come and learn their craft here they will get the skills and the abilities all paid for, trained for, everything else, and then there will be an attractive proposition for other organisations to then poach. So it is a worry, and it's one that we are looking at already now here, saying what does the future workforce look like yeah. and what can we do to incentivise them to stay very restricted, though, in what we can offer. Yeah, brilliant. Listen, um, yeah, I, you know, just to caveat that, I wasn't expecting, you know, uh, an answer absolutely to that question but I think you've come as close as I could reasonably have expected to an answer for an answer but yeah very very complicated <laughs> and um, yeah there's a lot a lot to a lot to think about there. listen Nick um, I'm going to wrap it up there yeah. because um, we're just reaching the end of the hour and uh, you, you've been an absolute star um, super super grateful um, to you for giving up your time thank you and uh, and it's been an absolute pleasure meeting you and uh, and let's hope we can maybe meet up um, for a pint at some point um, and uh, continue the conversation it's been my pleasure Ian thank you for having me on and as I say if people can take just even a couple of percent out of it which helps and uh, yeah. helps them with their careers and their forward thinking great job Fantas done fantastic listen thank you ever so much you take care and enjoy the rest of your day Thank you, Ian. You too. Yes. All the best. Thanks a lot, Nick. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So there you go. The very impressive Chief Constable of Northamptonshire, Nick Adderley. I've got to say his staff are very fortunate to have him. And the people of Northamptonshire are very fortunate to have him as their Chief Constable. So I wish him the very best of luck for the future. And I look forward to seeing his career prosper. And hopefully we'll uh, be able to meet up for that pint at some point in the future. Right, I'll leave you to it. And um, yeah, tune in and uh, listen to the bonus episode uh, where I talk about some of the stuff going on in the last week or so. Thanks very much. Bye.
He was often in our street. We used to smile and wave at him while walking on his beat. But now we never see him. It really makes us frown. No longer do we feel that we're the safest street in town. Oh. <laughs>